Our goal for the next four Sundays in our Advent season is to focus our attention on the supremacy of Christ. Christ is supreme all the time, and Christmas time is a special time for us to remember and focus our hearts on the central theme and message of Christmas, which is Christ himself. Christmas teaches us that Christ is supreme, that he is God with us, that he is the one who came to save us. But as we've already considered a little bit this morning, many things can get in the way of that. So what we would like to do is spend the next four Sundays looking at four different passages that teach us that Jesus Christ is supreme. And there will be a a total of four passages and four sermons that coincide with them that call our attention to the supremacy of Christ. And this morning, the call is to listen to Christ. Now, do any of you remember that old... Well, I suppose I just got myself in trouble by saying the word old. That, that uh, classic, uh, original uh, Grinch cartoon and the story therein where it is said of the Grinch that he is annoyed by all that noise, 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 noise. You remember that? Of course, the Grinch is upset about festive, happy, and cheerful noise that the Who's down in Whoville are engaging in. And now I am not about to suggest that we should be grumpy and cynical and grouchy like the Grinch at Christmas, but I would like to suggest that we ought to be a little bit grinchier about bad kinds of noise, or the kind of noise that can distract us from what is most important. So I suppose what I'm suggesting is a kind of opposite or reverse grinchiness, resistance to noise that gets in the way of true joy. The true festivities of the season, the real happiness and cheer that is found in a relationship with Jesus. Because the reality is there really is a lot of noise, 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 noise around us at Christmas, isn't there? And it's not always the good kind, even though it certainly is often. And I assume in in all of your homes, there is a lot of really good kinds of festive sounds and attitudes. But there is a noise of the world at this time of year that tells us that we need to get more stuff. A kind of noise that gives us lots of bad news, whether it's political news and networks that are really more interested in our views and clicks and the ratings that they can get to buy more, uh, to get more advertising dollars. And so they tell us all the worst spins of everything that's happening around us so that they'll get more eyes on their product. Or whether it's even Christian influencers in our world who are just perpetually pessimistic and complaining and hypercritical about everything going on in Christianity. Or even the noise of a disquieted, discontent, even anxious or depressed heart and mind that reminds us of our failures, that complains about our trials and the difficulties that we're facing. And of course, there's the noise of the evil one and his forces at work out there lying to us, accusing us, saying, you're not good enough. You still haven't figured it out. 
Why haven't you arrived? Your temper today just screwed up Christmas. You've made such a mess of your marriage. How do you expect there to be any hope this Christmas? You're a disappointment to your wife and your husband and your kids and your parents and your whatever else. There's a lot of bad noise at this time of year, isn't there? I believe that the passage that Josh read for us just a moment ago speaks to this and has a message for us that we need, therefore, this Christmas. There's actually a whole lot more in the passage than what we will focus on today. The scope of this passage is vast and deep and profound. What I'd like to do is just give kind of a brief summary of it before we dive into some specific portions. This passage takes place, the text tells us in the very first words of verse 28, eight days after the group of sayings that Luke records in the previous verses from verses 18 through 27. And that whole eight days thing, I think, is kind of interesting because Jewish boys were circumcised or confirmed, if you will, into God's family eight days after birth. And this passage takes place eight days after some questions and confusion about Jesus's identity and goes on, this passage does, to show the father's confirmation, if you will, of the sonship of Jesus. So it takes place eight days after the previous narrative there. The mountain that they're on here is unidentified, but it doesn't really matter what mountain it is. It matters that it's a mountain because what happens on this mountain has some startling similarities to what happened on a different mountain centuries previous when a different servant of the Lord named Moses was on Mount Sinai. And then the characters on this mountain, specifically Jesus and Moses and Elijah, it says they are discussing in their conversation what does it say in verse 31? They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So they're talking about something that Jesus is about to do that's characterized by the word departure. But in the, in the original Greek language in which Luke wrote this gospel, it's actually the word that can be translated exodus. And isn't that interesting? That just as Moses was on Sinai discussing the ramifications of the exodus from Egypt that had already taken place, Jesus is on this unidentified mountain discussing an upcoming exodus of a different sort that he would make toward the place of ultimate redemption. We also see that Peter, James, and John see this whole thing take place, and Peter is so startled that apparently he doesn't even know what he's saying, makes a suggestion here that has some debate around it, whether or not it was a stupid suggestion or a really actually a really great suggestion. doesn't really matter for our purposes this morning. It just says that Peter made his suggestion as Elijah and Moses were beginning to leave, and so it's as if, as if Peter is sort of trying to interrupt their departure and persuade Jesus to let them set up a time of further celebration and enjoy because he asks for them to set up some tents for each of them. Perhaps he had in mind a desire to build some tents for each of these people and celebrate the Feast of Booths or something so that they could continue this amazing mountaintop experience. Maybe he's making a connection between Jesus' presence on the mountain and the presence of God that dwelt in tents with Israel many years earlier. Maybe he just wants to prolong this mountaintop experience. We might call it both literally and figuratively. But what happens after all of these things that I'm summarizing shows that the real point of this event was that something even more profound than this 
literal and figurative mountaintop experience, though in the end probably a lot less experientially exciting or emotionally stirring, was happening. As Peter is talking, we see in verse 34, as Peter was saying these things, as he is talking, he interrupts, seeks to interrupt these men's departure, and then he is interrupted. They are overshadowed by a descending cloud, and it's a scary thing. They were afraid, it says at the end of verse 34. But as if that's not scary enough, this supernatural strange cloud descending on them, they then hear a voice coming from the cloud. And it's what the voice says that is the whole point of this event and what Luke wants his readers to understand and what I want to bring your attention to this morning. The voice says in verse 35, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The voice is saying that Jesus is the son of that voice and that Jesus is the chosen one of that voice and that Peter, James, and John need to listen to him. Suddenly after the voice finishes speaking, everything goes back to normal. Only Jesus is standing there with them as he had been before and they're so rattled by this experience that they never tell anyone about it until later. Mark in his gospel tells us that Jesus actually charged them not to talk about it until after the resurrection. We see Peter talking about it in his second letter, chapter 1. So that's the basic gist of what is happening here. And even in that brief summary of just a few minutes, you can see that this is packed with meaning, can't you? I I think of the organization, at least in my mind, of this passage in six C words. There's a callback to the Exodus from Egypt that Jesus then fulfills in his exodus to the cross. There's the commendation of Jesus on this mountain as Moses was commended at Sinai. There's the countenance of Jesus changing like the face of Moses was changed on Sinai. There's a connection made between Jesus and Moses and Elijah, which indicates that these important men were bearing witness to Jesus' coming ministry and displaying a sort of continuity between his ministry and theirs. There's also, fifth, a cloud indicating God's presence on this mountain, just like a cloud indicated God's presence on Sinai. And then finally, there is a call of the Father on this mountain to his people to listen to his chosen servant, just like he had done at Sinai in calling his children to listen to Moses. But the sermon is not about those six C's, even though I really like that I came up with C's for all of them. Rather, I'm going to zoom in on what the Father said in verse 35. The Father says three things. Number one, this is my son. Number two, this is my chosen one. Number three, listen to him. We're going to focus on that third one today, as you've probably already guessed by the fact that I've titled this message, Listen to Christ. And what I see in this text are four reasons to listen to Christ this Christmas. Four reasons to give your undivided attention to what he says. We're called to listen to Christ because he is the ultimate redeemer. We're called to listen to him because he is glorious. To listen to him because he is God with us. And to listen to him because he is God's word. So let's look at that first reason together. That he is the ultimate redeemer. 
Take another look at what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about on this mountain in verses 30 through 31. They're talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish. And just a few minutes ago, I I drew your attention to the fact that this word could be translated and perhaps more literally exodus. And so what they were talking about was Jesus' ultimate redeeming work. Just as the exodus was an act of redemption, Jesus' work on Calvary and at the empty tomb was the ultimate act of redemption, an exodus of a different kind. Now, Luke's account is the only gospel that gives us any indication of what exactly Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were discussing. Mark and Matthew say that they talked, and John doesn't detail this account. But Luke gives us this beautiful word, these words talking about discussing his departure, discussing his exodus, which I think is fascinating because as far as we know, Luke was not a Jew. Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician, a historian, and his use of the Greek language is regarded highly. But even though Luke wasn't a Jew and didn't have those cultural and ethnic connections to the Exodus like the Jews would have, I suspect that based on his being a historian and a Greek expert, he is using this word packed with Jewish meaning very purposefully. And even if he didn't, the Holy Spirit did because he inspired him to write it. But for anyone who would have read Luke's gospel with any knowledge of the history of redemption, this word would have signaled and ought to signal to us a connection with the ark, the story ark of redemptive history for the people of God. Because as I said earlier, the Exodus is the premier redemptive event of the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. It is the story of God graciously coming to the rescue of his people that he chose in his love, redeeming them out of slavery, drawing them into relationship with him, and forming them into his covenant people. And in Jesus' earthly ministry, we see his trajectory here described and characterized by the word Exodus. But his was a better Exodus. Because in the Old Testament, Old Covenant Exodus, God's people were enslaved by a cruel oppressor. They could not get themselves out of their bondage and needed God to send a deliverer to lead them out of bondage in Egypt. But in the New Testament Exodus... God's people were enslaved by something far worse than a cruel ancient pharaoh. They were enslaved to sin. And they were doomed to suffer the consequences of their sin, which is eternal death and punishment. And they could not get themselves out of their bondage to sin and could not free themselves from its penalty of death. And so, like the Jews in the Old Covenant, they needed God to send a deliverer who could lead them out of their bondage of spiritual death. And of course, spiritual death and sin has always been the core problem in the history of mankind. But in the life life and ministry of Jesus, a new age was dawning and new life was being given. No more was the old covenant the way to be restored to God. No more, in other words, was there a temporary kind of atonement and forgiveness and restoration through the sacrificial system as the means to maintaining a relationship with the Creator. No, Jesus had come to redeem His people once and for all permanently. 
Similarly, in the Old Testament Exodus, God's people were formed into an earthly nation that would stand as a representative of God to the people of the world. And in the New Testament Exodus, and because of it, Jesus' ministry brought about the constitution of a spiritual nation from every people group on earth, called out to be peculiar and formed in a different way than was the case in the Old Covenant, but serving the same ultimate purpose of being ambassadors and representatives of God to the world. And in the New Covenant, that's us, the church. Jesus formed us as a spiritual nation through his New Testament exodus. And so the Jews looked back at the Old Testament exodus as the prime example of God's steadfast love and redeeming love. And today, we Christians and Christians all over the world look back at the cross and look back at the empty tomb as the prime and ultimate example of God's steadfast love and redeeming work. And so we see that Jesus was on a journey to a departure. He was on his way to an exodus of a different physical sort, but of an even greater spiritual nature that would lead not just many Jews out of Egypt into the wilderness for a relationship with their maker, but would lead billions of Christians out of sin slavery and into a life of difficulty but joy because of their restoration to their creator through faith. And so why does the father say in verse 35 to listen to Jesus? First of all, because he is the ultimate redeemer. What he had come to do and what we know he eventually did was the greatest thing anyone has ever done. The most important thing that anyone could ever know. He came to redeem, to rescue, to purchase back those who were lost and enslaved and oppressed and ruined by their own sin. And my friend, Jesus can save you. He came to save you. And the only way to be saved by him is through faith in him. Simply believe, the Bible teaches. Believe on Jesus as your only hope in life and death. The only one who can save you from sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to him in faith and you will be saved. Christian friend, this is your Jesus. This is what he has done. He is your redeemer. He is the ultimate redeemer and he is yours. And through faith in him, you are his. He has bought you back. So rejoice and listen to him. The second reason is that he's glorious. He's glorious. Look at verse 32. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. When the three disciples wake from their sleep, what does Luke say that they see? He says that they see his glory, and they also see the two men, Moses and Elijah. But it's interesting to me that he doesn't, Luke doesn't say, and they saw their glory. It says, his glory. 
But you know, if you look at verse 31, it does say that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory. So they have a glorious appearance and, in a sense, nature in that moment as well. And if you look into the original language, it's the same word. The glory that Moses and Elijah are described by is the same glory that Jesus is described by in verse 32. It's the same word. It's the Greek word doxa. Perhaps you've heard of that word before. It's a word that essentially means brightness and majesty and beauty. And so Moses and Elijah have doxa at this moment. They have glory in this moment that is worthy of the same word being used for their glory as is used to describe Jesus' glory. And Jesus' glory for us is, is described in startling terms in verse 29. Do you see this? The appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So suddenly Jesus looked different than he did the moment before. His face changes and his clothes shine. His face is transformed. This isn't a vision that they're having. This is something that really happens. He looks different somehow, such that when his disciples see it, it's highly noticeable. He became a man, but he is no ordinary man. And his clothes shine. The original wording to describe this is the same wording to describe lightning flashes. So this is a a highly bright-looking thing that they are observing. And so clearly the glory that the disciples are seeing is something truly miraculous, truly astonishing. And there is no reason to think that Moses and Elijah aren't shining in a way too, since Luke describes their appearance with the same word. And yet, Luke says that when Peter, James, and John wake up, they see Jesus' glory. And I can't know this for sure, but I suspect this is intentional on Luke's part. Because, friends, Jesus' glory is ultimately different than Moses's and Elijah's. Jesus is the better Moses. He delivers his people eternally from sin, not temporarily from oppression. Moses delivered them from Egypt and their oppression there, but you know what? The people of Israel went back into oppression later on in life. Jesus is the better Elijah. He delivers God's word to his people perfectly. And it was prophesied and fulfilled in Jesus that his word was written on their hearts because of his work. Whereas eventually, Elijah, a speaker of God's word, died. And the word that he shared with the people that he called them to obey, they did eventually disobey. They did break the law. Whereas Jesus writes the word on the hearts of his people. Again, Jesus is the better Moses. He fulfilled the law perfectly, whereas Moses delivered it to his people, but he himself was a sinner. Jesus, again, is better than Elijah. He is God's revelation of himself, God himself, whereas Elijah was merely a mortal messenger. We could go on, but you you get the point. I think this is something we have to notice. Jesus is glorious far more than anyone or anything. And so the Father calls people to listen to Him. There's no one like Him. There's no thing in this universe that is better than Him. And it's not even close. If you could take a scale and measure the worth and wonderfulness of all the world's riches and all its fame and all its beauty and joy and love and happiness on one side and measure Jesus on the other every time he outweighs them. 
So why would you listen to Jesus this Christmas, my friend? Because he is glorious. The third reason given in this passage is that he is God's word. Listen to him because he is God's word. And that's really the heart of the call from the voice in the cloud. It's a call to listen. That implies that Jesus has something to say. And we have been blessed to listen to some of what Jesus said in his life and ministry as we've been spending about a year so far in Matthew's gospel together. But we're only about a third of the way through Matthew, and so there's a lot left. And there's, of course, other things that the other synoptic gospel writers have to say, and then what John says in his gospel that's so unique. And so there's a lot that Jesus said. But at the heart of the reason to listen to Jesus is that what he has to say is coming from the perfect representation or ultimate spokesperson of God. Jesus is God's revelation of himself to mankind. The law and the prophets in the Old Testament revealed much of the character and work and desires of God, but Jesus does it so much better than the law does. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 says it this way, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these days... He has spoken to us by His Son. And of course, what I'd love to do is then just go on and on about all the rest of Hebrews 1. But let that be a taste for you and you look at it further later. And so what Jesus has to say is exactly what the Father wants Him to say. And He says it better than the law that Moses imparted to Israel ever said it. And better than the prophets like Elijah ever expressed it. And so we must consider what Jesus taught when it came to God's law. And what he taught, ultimately, was that it's the heart that matters most. And that even if you haven't technically broken a command to murder or to commit adultery or to lie, if what's going on in your heart is murderous or adulterous or deceitful, you're still guilty of sin and in need of salvation. He also taught that the ultimate expression of what God requires in His law, the greatest commandment of all, is to love God with all that you are and your neighbor as yourself. And so there's a great example of what to listen to of what Jesus has said. But what about the essence of Jesus' message? What exactly was the point of what He came to share? Well, the point was what He started with, which was, The gospel, the message of the good news of the coming kingdom. He came to spread the good news of the kingdom of God, to tell the world that even though they had sinned through faith in Him, who is, Jesus said, the only way to the Father, they could be restored to their loving Creator and enjoy a relationship with Him forever. That's the essence of what Jesus is teaching and expressing. The good news of the kingdom of God. And so why listen to Jesus? Because he is the word of God. In fact, John, who was present at this event in Luke 9, when he wrote his gospel, called Jesus the word at the beginning of his gospel. 
the Word of God. If you want to turn just a few pages to John chapter 1, it's the next book over. If you're not familiar with the order of the books in the Christian Bible, you'll find just a handful of pages over the very first words of John's Gospel, where you see in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He that is the word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That light shining in the darkness is the exact same kind of thing that the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he prophesied of the coming Messiah in words that Paul read earlier for us in Isaiah 9 in verses 2 and 6, where it said, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a deep land, a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone later on for... To us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be Khaled, if you think in Handel's Messiah terms like I do at Christmas time. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. When Jesus was born as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he was the incarnate, the made flesh Word of God. And that is exactly what John calls him later on in John 1, where he calls him the Word made flesh. You can look down in verses 14 through 17 in John 1. The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You could skip down to verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That leads us to the fourth reason for us to listen to Christ, it's that he is God with us. He is the word become flesh. We sang it during communion, did you catch it? Emmanuel. It literally means God with us. And the Father's voice from the cloud in Luke 9 called the disciples there, only three of them at that moment, to give their attention to Jesus as being God the Son. This is my Son, verse 35. As being the divine, pleasing Beloved Son of God. The second person of what Christians refer to as the three-in-one or triune God. And it's, the, it's that divine sonship, my friends, that is so key to our Christian faith. Because think about it, brothers and sisters. If Jesus is not God with us and is just simply like any other man, like you and me, then he did some admirable things, but he was ultimately an insane person or a fake because he went around calling himself God. And if he's not God with us, just a man like any other man, then friends, you do not need to listen to him. 
But if he is God with us, then our attention must be focused on him. Our hearts must be devoted to him. Our lives must be centered around him because he is God. He is God the Son. He is the chosen one. He is the Messiah promised from of old. And everything, therefore, that he says and said must be heard and must be obeyed. Friends, he is God with us. He is not like any other man. He is the chosen one. And therefore, the Father says from the cloud what he says. He is my son. He is my chosen one. And therefore, you should listen to him. Now, put yourselves in Peter, James, and John's shoes here. Think about it. They see, evidently, with their very eyes, two massively important men in their Jewish history and religion. They had read about these men ostensibly their whole lives. One of them, Moses, is basically the most revered man in all of Jewish history. And Elijah, the quintessential fiery prophet, bringing judgment upon the enemies of God, bringing correction to the people of God, speaking on behalf of God. And so the Jews had been given instruction their whole lives to listen to them to follow what they said. And for centuries, Jews like Peter, James, and John would have read and even memorized Moses' words, rehearsed and rejoiced in the stories of uh, Elijah's prophetic work and word. And now here they are on this mountain in the middle of a cloud in which God the Father is speaking just like He spoke from a cloud on Mount Sinai. And He says what? He doesn't say, keep listening to Moses. And he doesn't say, listen to Elijah. No. He says, listen to Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses himself had prophesied that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so the call to listen to Jesus, a prophet like Moses in some ways, but far better than Moses, really ought not be that surprising. It had been prophesied before. Moses himself had said that this day would come. But what a scene. Two of the greatest men in Jewish history, two of the quintessential spokesmen of God, standing here, and God says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus of Nazareth. He's my son. And so, my friends, as I've already said, the call to you and me today is to listen to Christ this Christmas. Oh, my friend, do not let his person, his work, his words be drowned out by the soothing siren sounds of this world. Sometimes you'll see a scene of sirens in a movie. I don't mean like fire truck sirens. I mean like the, the mythic creatures of certain fantasy worlds and stories where a siren has this kind of soothing and even magical effect on the listener where they go into this trance and can't control their, their thoughts or their actions. 
That's kind of like what it's like in this world. A soothing siren sound calling to us to be entranced by things other than Jesus. I mean, before Halloween was even over, the stores had Christmas decorations up and their warehouses filled with merchandise that was just screaming a false promise at you that their products will bring you the hope and joy and peace and love that you need. And of course, ever since Halloween, it's just been full speed ahead with the noise of the world and the promise of hope and peace and joy in so many things other than Jesus, who is God with us. You know, sometimes it's kind of an implicit, implied message in our surrounding environments where it's not necessarily stated verbally this way, but the sense that we get, the message that we have and that we hear is you've got to have the best house decorations. You've got to have the trendiest Christmas card. You've got to outdo everyone's baking. You've got to share on social media all your decorations and the gifts that you get so that people can see how put together you and your family are. Sometimes it's the more clearly sin-stained and flesh-motivated voice inside our own heads and hearts speaking lies to us about how we need to impress our fellow church members with our pious Advent traditions. Or the need to fill our calendars way too full with traditions and even church activities. Or read more Advent devotionals than any other Christian in the world. Friend, if you're listening to anything this Christmas that's louder than Jesus and his message, I just call you to turn the volume down and all that stuff and crank the volume up on Jesus. Listen to him. And so if that means you need to literally turn down actual Christmas music or even off for a little while to be able to listen to Jesus by reading his word and practicing his presence, as a phrase is sometimes used, do that. If you need to turn the TV off or cancel a few plans or buy less presents or get off social media for a time in order to listen to Jesus, do it. Because he is the beloved, chosen son of God who came to save us. And so like the Grinch, but in a sort of reverse way, resist all that noise, 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 noise of this world, of the evil one, even of our own hearts, and listen to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it would have been quite the thing to have seen this event live and in person. But I suspect that even though some of us might think, oh, if only I had had this mountaintop experience, I would do a better job of listening to Jesus, that that's not really the case. Because Peter, James, and John sure didn't get it perfect after this. And we have even more than Peter, James, and John had in that moment in terms of the entire scriptures in our hands, in, in many cases, multiple copies of it in our homes and even on our devices. And yet we still struggle to listen to Jesus, to heed this call of your voice spoken in the cloud that day, to listen to Jesus. Lord, my prayer for me 
and for my beloved brothers and sisters and friends here this morning is that Jesus, his person, his work, his message would obliterate all the other messages, all the other noise, all the other so-called glories of this world. That we would see Jesus as our ultimate redeemer, that we would see him as glorious, that we would see him as the word of God, and that we would see him as God with us, and therefore, listen, help us, please. Lord, I am praying in Jesus' name for help to turn down the volume on anything else that we shouldn't be listening to or that is getting a little too loud in comparison with the message of who Jesus is and what he has done. Give us courage. Give us strength. Give us even amounts of discipline that may be needed to make any kind of adjustments to what we're listening to this Christmas so that Jesus will shine through and that we would hear him loudest. Help all of us here to do that. By your grace, through the power of your spirit, and for the glory of your own name. Now let's take a few minutes and continue in prayer together along these lines in light of the scriptures.